Introducing Simply Light Lemonade. Can you hear that? That's the sweet sound of 75% less sugar and calories. We want to make sure you hear it's 75% less sugar and calories because it tastes so good. Let's talk about games for a second. Some teachers are using experience points to track performance instead of letter grades. Playing Tetris has been shown to reduce symptoms of PTSD. If you want to get engaged with movements in the gaming landscape, check out Plus 7 Intelligence, the podcast about how games impact people. You can subscribe to Plus 7 Intelligence on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and more. Season 2, available now. Welcome to the Podglomerate. just I can't do this and she's like well let me ask you something do you love this story and I'm like I I absolutely adore it and she said all right then you should write it because you know the old adage write what you love and you can't love what you don't know so get to know it welcome to writers you don't write I'm Jeff I'm Kyle, and welcome back, Jeff, to Writers Who Don't Write from your Florida excursion. Florida is a weird, weird place. Were you just wearing pastels and showing chest hair the whole time? No, that's my New York outfit. What did you go for, exactly? Uh, a bunch of my friends and I go to a different city each year for a fantasy baseball draft, which, ironically, I'm not even in the league. I just I just tag along because I think it's fun. Is there a is there a male equivalent to the extra, to the word extra? You know how people are described as being extra. It's very extra of you, I think. Am I using that correctly? I I have no idea. I mean, I guess you could say basic or broy or extra. Oh or yes, fratty. Okay, I guess it's broy, broy, fratty, all those things. But it, it's cool because the older that we've gotten over the years, you know, the more money we we all for the most part have made. So we're able to do like more more uh, extravagant things. And this year we rented a mansion that honestly is worth more than anything I will ever own. Uh, but there's like 16 or 17 of us in the house. So we all split it, you know, three ways and it was fairly cheap for us. Uh, you split it three it, ways, huh? Sorry. We, so we all split it and it was fairly cheap for us. It's uh, definitely bro yeah, no, it was it was amazing though. It, you know, there's a pool. It was on the water. Uh, I took a charter boat out and went fishing. We were at the beach the whole time. Uh, it was spring break, which was like to be honest, uh, really weird because I, I just turned thirty last week, and thirty year olds should not be at spring break. So I mean, I I don't really have much to report beyond any of that. I'm just gonna let you work that one out on your own. Yeah. But, I mean, in any case, now that we've uh, talked about me, what's new in your world? Uh, not much. This week on the show, we've got Stina Light. Oh, you're who, just going to just gonna brush it off? Oh, yeah. Just going to brush gonna it off? Right through it. We're just going to go right on to the reason that people are really here, which is Stina Light. We talked to her about her newest series, which consists of Blackthorn and Cold Iron. Uh, it's a Flintlock fantasy series for Simon & Schuster's Saga Press. And, Jeff, what did we talk to her about? All kinds of stuff. Uh, representation in science fiction and fantasy, uh, what it was like being told at a young age that uh, women can't be writers, um, how she ended up as a writer, what her career was prior to that, 
what it's like for her to um, put out new work and engage with her fans and go to cons uh, and building stories based on characters as opposed to worlds. Uh, we really dug into it pretty deeply. Um, and I think that this is a little bit, I know that we've been interviewing a lot of different like science fiction uh, and, and genre fiction authors in the recent few months. Um, and this one kind of stood out to me as a little bit different and unique to compared to some of the other interviews that we've done. And uh, you should reach out to us on Twitter at www.podcast and let us know what you think. And we will make sure to let Stina know uh, and you know tag her as well. It's S-T-I-N-A-L-E-I-C-H-T on Twitter and let us know what you think. Ask us any new questions that you have. Uh, it was a lot of fun to chat with her and I hope that you all enjoy it as much as we did. always wanted to be a writer, but my dad said that was not one of the five things women could be, so I stopped writing when I was in middle school and did not return to it until much, much later in life. Um, I started playing D&D &D in college and discovered, oh my gosh, this is this is like writing. This is this is like writing. I can do this. Nobody told me I can't do this. So I did a lot of practice with dialogue by running by being a DM for 16 years and one day as a DM I ran into a friend who was a professional writer for a game company and also a fiction writer and uh, they told me after asking about my D&D campaign um, that I needed to be writing this stuff down instead of letting it go off into the ether and on a D&D campaign. So I started writing at, at their recommendation, joined a local science fiction fantasy writers group for beginners called Slug Tribe here in Austin, Texas, and um, started working on, on writing. Uh, I really... The, the real kicker, though, was the fact that I, I, got, I came down with cancer, and I thought, breast cancer, and I thought to myself, what would be the one thing that I would regret if I died right now? And that regret was mainly, um, besides leaving my husband without, without, alone, without any children or anything like that, um, it was you know, that I'd never become a writer, that I never even tried. So I, uh, I started right away and joined the Slug Tribe group and uh, ended up the day I was married. It's just a long series of disasters. It was like the day I got married, I got laid off from my job and I could not find work anywhere because it was during that the dot-com bust. Um... So I decided I've always wanted to work at a bookstore. So I got a job at a bookstore in addition to writing on my own to keep myself sane. And uh, learned everything I could about the writing, publishing end of things via the bookstore. Ended up meeting several authors, one of which was Holly Black who is a New York Times bestseller of YA fiction. YA was my, 
at Book People, the bookstore where I worked, everyone had a section of the store that was their um, uh, expertise, right? That was their, their, their section that they were supposed to know everything about. So customers could go to that person if they had a question about a book in that section and why it was mine. Um, so anyway, uh, Holly and I started exchanging emails and over the course of five years of exchanging those emails, I finished Of Blood and Honey, which is my first published novel. And correct me if I misunderstood, the, the story that you didn't sell um, is what became Cold Iron? Yes. Actually, I'll, to tell you the truth, the story that I didn't sell is actually, uh, it was based on Nels, who's the main character in Cold, one of the main characters in Cold Iron. But the novel that I sent out was actually Blackthorn. Ah, so you wrote the second installation first. Yeah. Because I'm weird. <laughs> I think it makes sense. You you establish the world and then you start to define it more through the Can you talk about why that made more sense to you to do it that way as opposed to writing the the first novel first or when you sort of realized that you had to fill out the backstory more? It was one of those things, you know, as a writer, you always end up with characters that are supposed to be on the side of the stage. You're just a supporting character. And that, and that character will sometimes try to take center stage. And that was Nels. He just wouldn't shut up. <laughs> and I finally just said, fine, here, have center stage for a while. And he and Victor were so hilarious that I just, I, I had to go, all right, I got to tell your story. This is... This is silly. In addition, there was another published writer um, named Carrie Richardson who was encouraging me to write short stories rather than novels because she wanted me to practice, which is, she's right. She's right. Short stories will actually help novelists, actually help novelists in so many ways. It's like going to the gym and working out. You, 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 you can focus on muscle groups that way, right? Um, short stories are a short commitment. You learn how to write a beginning, a middle, and an end. And everyone, all novelists know how to write a beginning. It's finishing that's really hard for everyone, right? So writing an end is really super hard um, because you have to stick it just so. The gymnast has to land on its, on, on its feet, you know? Even Stephen King has a problem with that on occasion, right? How often do you start your stories with like the world in mind as opposed to the characters? I'm a character-driven writer. So generally, I do the thing that Ray Bradbury did, uh, which was, oh, you look like an interesting character. I'll think I'll follow you around for a while <laughs> until I find a plot. <laughs> when I started that particular series, which again was started with Blackthorn, I had in mind already to write it as a mosaic plot, um, which is what I call the setup for Game of Thrones. It's told from multiple points of view. Um, I had read Game of Thrones and I thought, oh, that is really cool. I think I'll, I'll try because the way I feel how reality actually works is none of us is like the ultimate savior of the world or whatever. We just think we are. And mainly we interact with other people and those effects 
are woven together like it's kind of like dropping a pebble in a pond you know we do we have an action we make a choice and that pebble drops into the pond and it ripples and affects other people um so it's not a direct thing it's an indirect thing and 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 the world as a whole all of us are what create change not just one person and I wanted to tell that aspect of it because that actually runs against everything that epic fantasy does, right? So that was what I wanted to do. So I knew right away that Nels was going to be one of the main characters when he wouldn't walk off stage and leave Blackthorn on it. Um, so when I wrote Cold Iron, I thought, okay, this will be your book. When you can, you can do what you need to do. And then the other characters came about because I, my agent kept, because Joe kept asking me, where, where are the female characters? And uh, I have a hard time writing female characters, strangely enough. And it's largely because I grew up in an era where there weren't very many stories written about girls or, or women, particularly about women. Women's stories to this day are still not considered important enough in a big chunk of literary, in science fiction circles, in literary circles, it's still an issue. Uh, but it's getting better, thank goodness. Um, and I have been trying ever since to, to deprogram myself, <laughs> which has been really hard. Um, but so as a co consequence of him asking me for more female characters, I, I wrote about Suvi and Ilta. Um, so that's how those three came together. Hopefully that answers your question. <laughs> yeah, no, it does. But it, it also strikes me that like a lot of our listeners may not have read the books yet. So it, would you give us a little bit of background as to kind of like what the plot and the theme behind uh, this series is? Cold Iron and Blackthorn are an epic fantasy set during a flintlock era, so it, it got the label epic flintlock fantasy stuck on it, pinned on it. Um, it is my intent when I wrote it was to write it from a less conservative perspective because uh, conservative in what sense? In the sense that usually with epic fantasy, it's very, very focused on the king and royalty and how great, you know, it used to be in the old days. Very pro -monarchy. Everybody was in their, yeah, the monarchy thing, right? Yeah. I wanted to write epic fantasy that was not really about a monarchy. I wanted to write epic fantasy that was actually about establishing a democracy. <laughs> um, so... Yeah, I was, I love taking tropes and like twisting them until mm -hmm. they break. And that's what I did with, with that series. You talked about wanting to write more female characters and being driven by your agent to do that. Did that lead directly to your new effort, which you're working on now? Uh, yes, yes, yes and no. Okay, so I was in, I was in, uh, a movie theater watching the trailers right mm. and y you never can control when an inspiration particle is going to slam you in in the skull <laughs> that's for sure um as you know um 
so I was sitting there in the movie theater and then the trailer for Magnificent Seven came up and I was like, hey, that's great. They're doing a remake of Magnificent Seven. Look, there are people in co of color involved in the, oh God, there's not a single solitary woman in the entire thing. Arr! And then all of a sudden I got this inspiration particle that said, well, what about, what if we gender flipped this and set it in space? Holy crap. Um, so I ended up with uh, six women of color and one white woman who never speaks. Now, the reason I set it up that way is because if you listen to, I, I started listening a lot to what's going on with black Twitter. And one of, one of the justifiable things that comes up, objections that comes up, or complaints that comes up pretty regularly, is that white women talk over black women way too much. And so I wanted to kind of symbolically do something about that. <laughs> okay, and then how, so you started writing Persephone Station from this um, effort and you've called it a space opera. It's a space opera in that it is not actually uh, focus on it's a space opera in the same sense that Star Wars is a space opera, right? It doesn't focus on the technicalities of all of the stuff that's going on, really. There's no real science backing up any of that stuff. We can pretend like there is, but there isn't. Oh, okay. So the space opera is just, it's its an indicator that it's sort of, uh, I think it's called soft sci-fi, right? Like there's hard sci-fi and yeah. there's soft sci-fi. Or yeah, I don't really like those particular labels, largely because a lot of the people who are throwing around the hard sci-fi title generally tend to do it uh, in such a manner that it's sexist. Oh, is it really? I It is a, an area of blindness for me. I hadn't actually heard those terms until relatively recently. Yeah. Um, so you yeah, chose space because, opera instead. Yeah, that's why I did, because... Again, a lot of a lot of the ways that certain individuals attempt to exclude authors who happen to be women from the science fiction end of things is that they emphasize that women don't write hard fantasy, hard science fiction. They just write fantasy, right? Um, I hear that a lot. <laughs> what a ridiculous idea! Yeah. It's it's stupid and it's it's wearing really thin and and soon that will not be a problem anymore. Hopefully, right? I hope the the, the natural progression Hopefully. just weeds it all out. That's my hope. So what what do you think just in general of like the sci-fi fantasy publishing space as a whole and cuz I know that you know it's ironically been like looked at as kind of like this beacon of change and hope. And, uh, and it's just, you know, in my, in my view recently that they've started to be, you know, a lot more inclusive. Um, would you like tend to agree with that? Uh, Oh yeah. And, and, and kind of like, what have you seen in your experience in that world? Um, I would definitely agree with that. There is definitely, there are a lot of there's several different things that that still stick. Like at least now, more than one woman is allowed to have a debut novel, which is nice. But after that, 
Remaining as an established author is extremely hard. That's, that's the part where we're not doing our homework right now. Um, critics and reviewers tend to basically, you become invisible as a woman um, after you're not shiny and new. And that's pretty much standard for women in the workforce. Uh, if you're young and you're in, you're you're paid attention to, and not necessarily given the attention that you you need or want, <laughs> but once you are over thirty, then much less so. Um, and then when you become a, a middle-aged woman, you become invisible. That's just how it is and and science the science fiction fantasy community definitely suffers from that um and suffers because of it because there's all of this great talent that's being blown off like kate elliott is amazing amazing and and people should be reading her work profusely but they don't <laughs> um it's it's that erasure that's been going on since since the beginning of science science fiction and fantasy but it'll eventually you know step by step introducing simply light lemonade can you hear that that's the sweet sound of 75 percent less sugar and calories we want to make sure you hear it's 75 percent less sugar and calories because it tastes so good. Is that another area where, you, or another area where you feel like the the progression is sort of happening, even if it's slower than it should be? I really do believe so. Um, my belief is that pro progress is a loop or a spiral. I guess a spiral might be a better analogy. Inward or outward? It, it's that whole two steps forward. Inward or outward? Huh? Upward. 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 Yeah. So it's that whole two, three steps forward, two mm. steps back routine, right? I think humanity just takes a while to, to process things. So you make all of this forward progress, and then we go through this political time where people try to push, it, push things back to the good old days. And people lose rights. People, all these bad, horrible things start happening. And then everybody gets fired up and says, this is wrong. And we're not going to take it anymore. And then we push for more progress. And then that pushes out a certain distance to where things get to be super uncomfortable. And then another crowd comes along and says, well, I remember in the good old days. And they push it backward. It's something you see in history constantly. Yeah, I've always thought of it as more of a pendulum. But I think a spiral also makes sense because it implies progress. Politically, it's like a pendulum in the United States. That's, that's how I view American politics. It's a, it's a pendulum. Yeah, an increasingly chaotic pendulum. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Every time it swings the wrong way, it feels awful. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I agree, but but if we were to if it was were to remain static, we wouldn't get any progress at all, right? Yeah. Because because what do you call things that don't move and don't don't do anything and just stay in the same place all the time? We call well, them dead. The... <laughs> <laughs> They're dead. <laughs> I just it's like is it it must be possible to have progress without the pendulum though. Like there must be a way, a place where we can get to that doesn't necessarily need uh, the backswing. Like it shouldn't have to be the case that a certain popular, a certain percentage of the population should uh, go into poverty or lose, uh, you know, their basic human rights in order for progress to be achieved. But it certainly feels like it's inevitable at the moment. I, I wish, I really wish that that were, that it weren't human, human beings just, we, we learn from, from messing up mistakes are how we learn best. It's just how humanity does its thing. I mean, think about climate change, right? We tend to not do anything about our problems until they just become so drastic that horrible things are going to happen if we don't do something about it right away. And that's just my sense of it. We're humanity's a little bit lazy, I gotta say. Um, we only do the, the heavy duty lifting unless it's necessary. And there are a few few people who do the heavy lifting thinking without it being necessary, but it just seems like humanity drags its feet a bit. I mean we like we like to be comfortable. And what's more comfortable for certain people who are in power than what's been established? Than not right? changing anything at all? Yep. <sighs> well, before we get to solving the problems of the world, I think we're at the point now where we usually transition into the story that the author has struggled to tell. And I know you presented us with a couple of options ahead of time. And we've already talked about one. Um, but I was wondering if you wanted to... to to tell one of those stories and I'd leave it up to you to choose. So when I initially came up with the idea of blood and honey, uh, there were a couple of different things going on. Uh, I had attended a, a convention here in Texas. It was in Dallas actually. And one of the panels was what's the big, next big myth that that everybody should move on to 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 borrow from as it were um it was not very uh well worded (laughs) the the topic um anyway it was just at the beginnings where everyone was starting to figure out that this is not a good attitude to take towards different belief systems and different cultures. Cultures don't exist for us to wander through and just steal from. That's not not good. Anyway, the, everyone at the, at the panel was going on about how all of the Irish stuff had been completely done to death and it was over with and all this stuff. And I was sitting there and I, I've done a fair bit of reading about Irish mythology at that point. And I was like, I don't think you know what that means because the little fairies that sit in the flowers with the, with the butterfly wings, that's, that's not the Irish myth I'm aware of. Um, not in a big way. 
the Fianna. I don't know if you've ever heard of them. I have not. It's, uh, they're a lot more. I said I have not, sorry. Ah, yes. They're more like Paul Bunyan. They were kind of a, a combination of Paul Bunyan and the Knights of the Round Table. Uh, only probably a bit rowdier. Um, so that has nothing to do with the little fairies with the with the butterfly wings and also a lot of the legends and the, the things that that are really deeply connected to Irish culture they're more they're more like spirits they're more like even ghosts or, or demons right there's they're frightening um, and some of them are good and some of them not so good but they're all mysterious, like ghosts would be, right? Like we all think of when we think of ghosts and spirits. So anyway, I was like, I don't think that means what you think that means. And I walked away thinking, well, what? Everyone has been merrily taking Irish fairies out of Ireland and then planting them in the United States. What if I took the Irish fairies and then sent them home? What would that look like? And the more I thought of that, I thought, well, modern times, uh, because that's what urban fantasy does. And then I immediately got sucked into the, the troubles, the history of the troubles and how deeply harrowing it is and, you know, fascinating at the same time. Um, because it is re recent history, it's it's really messy. Over time, history gets cleaned up and edited. And that has not happened with the Troubles. Uh, so I read this book called Those Are Real Bullets, <clears throat> which is an accounting of Bloody Sunday as told by two British reporters who were present at the time. And their accounting of what happened is so completely drastically different from what the British government laid out. It was just appalling. So I don't, I don't know if you're familiar with Bloody Sunday at all. In Irish history, there are multiple Bloody Sundays. Uh, this one was 1972. January, I believe. Um, it's been a while. <laughs> so um, this is when a lot of... Uh, it all starts with the Catholics and the Protestants, right? That's all we ever hear about here in the United States. The Catholics versus the Protestants. Um, the national, nationalists and the loyalists. So the nationalists tend to be Catholic. Uh, the nationalists want to have the Ireland be one whole nation. The loyalists want to stick with the UK and partition, which partitions off Northern Ireland from the rest of the country and leaves it with Britain. So the loyalists want to stick with that. And that's why they're called loyalists. So that's, easy fast way it really ultimately if you ask me and I'm, I'm not an expert but my impression of it is that 
it really doesn't have that much to do with religion. Both sides are Christian. Um, most of it has to do with who has the power and who doesn't have the power. So the folks that have the power are the loyalists, or during that era, are the loyalists, and the those who didn't were the nationalists, the Catholics. So they're both, also keep in mind, they're both working class groups. So the differences are just marginal, you know. And there's not a whole, during that era, there wasn't a whole lot of money in Northern Ireland and Belfast and just in general. There just wasn't a whole lot of money going on there, which is another, the economic factors are just a huge, huge deal. So anyway, um, oh God, I could give a lecture. <laughs> Don't really need to. Anyway, so the idea I came up with was that the main character is a, a Catholic whose father was, was um, who he was told his father was a, a, a Protestant who knocked up his mother and then vanished. Um, but in reality, his father is Bran of the Fiona. And Bran is a shapeshifter. He's a puka. And so our main character, Liam, is a puka, doesn't know it, gets pulled into the troubles, becomes a wheelman for an IRA bank robbing unit, and then everything goes horribly, horribly awry. So that's where I went with all that. And the whole time I was telling myself, story, this is not mine to tell. You need to be somewhere else. You need to go to someone in Ireland for, to have your story told. You need to like go away. And this, and, and this story just kept sitting there on my doorstep, looking at me, going, I, I picked you. I, you need to tell the story. And I'm like, no, 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 no. This is not my history. I am not Irish. This is not, this, no. <laughs> go, go away. And it just wouldn't go away. So I started writing it. Um, I, one day, <clears throat> I sat down with Elizabeth Moon. And we had a talk about it. And I said, I just, I can't do this. And she's like, well, let me ask you something. Do you love this story? And I'm like, I, I absolutely adore it. I'm obsessed. It's, it's wonderful in that it's just so fascinating and sad. It's just so tragic. And she said, all right, then you should write it. Because, you know, the old adage, write what you love. And you can't love what you don't know. So get to know it. Talk to the people who went through it, all that stuff. And so based on her advice, I went and I actually did. I, I started taking Irish language lessons. And through the, the Irish language school, I found people who, who lived in the neighborhood that I was writing about, West Belfast. And I interviewed them. Uh, about their experiences during the Troubles. I listened to audiobooks of Northern Irish writers so that I could get the speech patterns right. So every night for five years, I went to bed listening to specific, because there are four main accents in Ireland. The Irish accent you think of when you think of an Irish accent is actually stage Irish. And that's not, that's not even 
anywhere near the vicinity of correct. <laughs> so, um, so you did the research. Northern to get it Irish down. accents. Yes, Northern Irish accents are very different from what you what you think of when you think of an Irish accent. So anyway, one of the writers that I listened to quite a lot and I really love his work is Adrian McKinty. He's an Irish crime writer and he's amazing. He has a snack for writing about the the most awful things uh, as if it as if it's stained glass. It's really weird. It and and amazing. It's really amazing. So anyway, I had a really hard time with it the whole time. I was telling myself that I, I can't do this, I can't do this. What happens if somebody from Northern Ireland reads this story? And I had to, over and over, oh, no one would do that. But at the same time, I had to be super, super careful. So I was extremely focused about being very, very careful and knowing everything I could possibly learn um, about this other culture of which I was not a part and could not even visit because I couldn't afford to go to Northern Ireland. Um, I didn't go to Northern Ireland until 2015. Um, so I studied photographs. I did everything I possibly could. And the whole time I was freaking out. <laughs> and my husband was like, Stina, 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 nobody's going to like jump out of a bush and shiv you if you get this wrong. And I'm like, how do you know? <laughs> so I, I was under a lot of stress to get it right. Again, thinking that only about four or five people that I knew was ever going to read it. I never thought anyone in Northern Ireland would ever read it, let alone Adrian McKinty. <laughs> It's really interesting to hear you talk about how you, first of all, the fear of writing about another culture that you know is steeped in blood and also very sensitive to outsider opinions. And it's interesting to hear you talk about how you conquered that fear just through extensive research, it sounds like. Yeah, above all, I didn't want to create more harm. There's so much harm done and has been done over the years by Americans specifically, who take a look at that conflict and immediately make assumptions about it. It is not a cut and dried situation. There, it's not a black and white, these are the good guys and these are the bad guys situation. It's messed up. All right, Stina, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today to talk about so many things. Where can our listeners find you online? Sure. You can find me at cslight.com it's my website and my blog mainly um, you can also find me on twitter my twitter handle is stina light l-e-i-c-h-t is my last name and stina is my first name s-t-i-n-a um, and you can also find me on facebook for now <laughs> Thank you for listening to another episode of Writers Who Don't Write. You can find us online at thepodglomerate.com or at www.podcast.com. Uh, there's a bunch of other shows on The Podglomerate that you should check out. There is uh, actually a, a super relevant one to Writers Who Don't Write that we just launched, um, which wouldn't necessarily sound like it at first. It's called Off Track with Hinch and Rossi. Uh, it is another interview show. Um, 
with James Hinchcliffe and Alexander Rossi, who are both uh, really popular and talented IndyCar drivers, um, which is a world I didn't really know much about a few months ago. Uh, but this week, we are releasing an episode where they interview John Green, the author of Fault in Our Stars. Uh, it's a two-parter. Definitely check it out. It's really, really fun uh, and super interesting. Did you know that John Green is a huge IndyCar fan? I didn't. Uh, but in any case, you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at WWDW Podcast. We really appreciate any comments that you can leave on social media or reviews that you can leave on your podcatcher of choice. We're available wherever you listen to podcasts. Uh, Spotify, iTunes, CastBox, Pocket Cast, TuneIn, Apple. The music that you heard at the top and the bottom of the hour is from Ryan Dan of Holland Patent Public Library. You can find him online at hollandpatentpubliclibrary.com. The music that you heard in the middle of the show is from Ben Sound, who you can find online at bensound.com. You can find Kyle at Kyle Craner on Twitter, and you can find me at Jeff Umbro on Twitter. Thank you again so much for listening, and tune in in two weeks for our next guest. Uh, I know who exactly who it is, but I'm not going to tell you unless you ask me on Twitter. Should be fun. Talk to you soon. The Podglomerate, a sonic universe.